Now more than ever, it's important for you to stay informed, keep learning about what's happening in the world across a wide range of topics. That's why you should sign up for The Great Courses Plus. With The Great Courses Plus, you get unlimited access to watch over 8,000 engaging video lectures presented by award-winning experts. You can learn about whatever interests you. Great literature, world history, the mysteries of human behavior, even how to play chess or just take better photos. The Great Courses Plus adds new courses all the time. And you can watch these lectures on your schedule. You can stream from any smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. And then you start and pick up again from any device when you want. And because you're listening to this podcast, you should watch this new course, Becoming a Great Essayist. You'll learn how to enhance your own creativity and write in a way that's unique to your own experience and goals. You can add shape and color to your words. Right now, Brett Easton Ellis listeners can watch this course and so many others for free. Just sign up through this special URL, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. That's B-R-E-T. Start your free trial today. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett, B-R-E-T, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Brett. Hey, everyone. I'm Maggie McGrath, a staff writer at Forbes magazine and your new host for a show called Forbes on Trump. Politicians are all talk. No action. I'll be speaking with the editors and writers who are reporting on the 45th president. We'll hear what they're finding out about his wealth, his business associates, and the ways in which he and his policies are affecting the economy, consumers, and all aspects of the business world. Somebody has to come out and tell it like it is. Along the way, we'll dive into Forbes archives, which contain decades of information that will add context to the current White House administration. So listen to this. Listen to this. That's Forbes on Trump on Podcast One. Subscribe now at iTunes, and don't forget to rate, review, and share. The following program is a Podcast One.com production. So unimpressed, but so in awe. Such a saint, but such a whore. So self-aware, so full of shit. So indecisive, so adamant. I'll contemplate and thinking about thinking. It's overrated, just get another drink and watch me come undone. There's seven razor blades and mirrors in the street. I pray that when I'm coming down, you'll be asleep. If I ever hurt you, your revenge will be so sweet because I'm scum and I'm young. I'm Brett Easton Ellis, and you're listening to the Brett Easton Ellis Podcast, and I'm here at the Podcast One Studios in Beverly Hills with my guest, Sam Outlaw. Some of my friends and acquaintances, as well as the millennial partner I've been living with for the last seven years, are now undergoing the last spasms, the death throes, hopefully, of a kind of new liberal psychosis that was, is, afflicting many members of the left. The building that inhabited the old-school, identity-politics-obsessed, neoliberal elitist was, is, being deconstructed by actually both sides. Eight years of an Obama-era style and sensibility are on the verge of decimation by the recently elected disruptors. Yes, the disruptors took over, taking their cues from Silicon Valley and playing by new rules and telling anyone who doesn't understand the new rules to go fuck themselves. 
And the bedraggled remnants of the left is, in some cases, still fighting the fact that a president was elected by the people and actually resides in the White House. Well, only some of the time. This is also part of the disruptor's message. Why does the president have to live in the White House, the disruptors ask, gasp from the resistance that's so not presidential. That reaction was a constant throughout the campaign, as the disruptor played with an entirely new rule book, blowing up fixed ideas about what is presidential and what is not, how campaigns should be run or not, how social media can be used to reach voters or not. This is what leveled the press and made them look like some kind of old-school anachronism, unable to understand the new playbook that the disruptors had devised, and that the press was now trying to deal with, flailing about and hectoring, And yes, wasting everybody's time by taking everything so damned literally while the anarchists in the shadows smile to themselves, awaiting their turn. Liberalism used to be about freedom, but now it's about a kind of warped moral authority that is actually part of the moral superiority movement. This faction of the left is touchingly now known as the resistance. Oh, yes, the resistance. What is this resistance? There are posters all around my neighborhood in West Hollywood urging me to resist, 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 very prominently on the gates outside L.A.'s most famous gay bar, the Abbey on the corner of Robertson and Santa Monica Boulevard. But some of us who did not vote for Trump and who located exactly who he was decades ago, I wrote about this in American Psycho, some of us have been wondering, resist what exactly? And who is telling us to resist whatever? The people who voted for the candidate who lost? I'm supposed to listen to them? Is this a joke? What am I supposed to be resisting? Well, I'm certainly resisting the childish meltdowns I've been witnessing at dinners and on social media and on late night TV and too many times in my own home in the aftermath of Donald Trump's victory last November. And this disruption of the status quo of the establishment, this dismantling of the political narrative everyone had been so used to and who expected the Obama era to effortlessly merge in with another Clinton in the White House, which alarmingly suggested, I thought, a movement backward and not forward. And when this didn't happen, it was just too much for some people. And I will um, resist using the term snowflake. Let's face it, it has been overused. And all the disappointment and fear and horror and rage has not subsided for some people, and not just members of Generation Wuss, but actual adults, grown-ups, people in their 40s and 50s and 60s, unhinged and acting like big disappointed babies that their team didn't win. And just as I tune out immediately anyone who even now keeps saying Donald Trump called Mexicans rapists once in his very first speech, once, only once, I also tune out whenever someone said Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. Yes, in New York and Los Angeles, but more on that later. Now, it's true. I know a lot of Hillary Clinton supporters who are disappointed, but they got over it, accepted it, moved on. And this was a kind of adult acceptance in the way the world actually works. You win some, you lose some. You can't always get what you want. That song seemed to be the theme of the election, the boomer elegy about 1960s optimism sliding into eventual disillusionment and then finally into a resigned pragmatism was played at all of Trump's rallies and it was played after his victory speech on the night of the election as well, sealing the deal. And in fact, many of these people I knew who were disappointed in the Trump victory and moved on were also appalled by the childlike liberal disbelief of their own party that was manifesting itself in embarrassing ways. From so many morning-after posts titled hysterically, What am I going to tell my daughter? Well, one friend suggested, why not tell her Trump won, shit happens, this is the way of the world, grow up, that's life, bitch. 
to parents I know who supported Clinton, appalled that teachers at the private elementary schools they sent their children to were denouncing our bad new president in their classrooms, causing more than one parent I know to have a talk with the principal, wondering how could this attitude be prevalent in the classroom of a five-year-old child, and from a teacher who was an adult, no less. What the fuck? And let's avoid talking about the pink pussy hats and walking around dressed like a giant vagina while Ashley Judd performs some slam poetry about her menstrual cycle and Madonna says she wants to blow up the White House. In the week after the election, I had random dinners with a few male friends who had voted for Clinton. Um, FYI, I had voted for no one because I live in California, and what was the point? I also believe that if you don't vote, you have no right to complain about who won, and I'm not going to. Though I am going to complain about the culture's inability to accept the winner and self-victimization. And anyway, these guys were surprisingly calm. Yes, they had experienced shock and disappointment, but they also coolly explained what they ended up doing on election night and the hangovers, literal and metaphorical, they endured on the morning after. Out of the three dinners I had that week in November, two of the men expressed surprise and dismay that they realized they had been living in a bubble. Ah, yes, the bubble, the dreaded bubble. I, for some reason, had not been living in a bubble. And maybe that's why the outcome of the election didn't seem as shocking to me as it did to those residing within the bubble. But more on that later as well. But those calm, some might say stunned dinners, were really the exception to the usual dinner or gathering or really any conversation in the months after the election, even though now as the reality sinks in about the disruptors, the hysteria of the left is finally becoming kind of the exception. There's a strange combination of desperation and resignation at the fallout from what happened months and months ago. And yet it still flares up. I experienced an outburst last week from a disillusioned lefty who had supported the Clinton campaign without even liking the candidate and who I had not seen since last summer. She was in L.A. from New York for a few days, and I met her and an acquaintance of mine I hadn't seen in years and who was also in L.A. on business for dinner when the outburst happened. My moral ambivalence about politics in general leaves me usually as a neutral guest at the table. And as a writer, I'm more interested in investigating my friends' thoughts and feelings rather than debating them about the election and who should have won and what should we do about the Electoral College. I prefer to talk about movies and books and music and TV shows. And yes, I'm not a believer that politics solve the dark heart of humanity's problems. When my angry, traumatized boyfriend criticized me for not being angrier about the election, uh, this was in February, by the way, I shot back, I don't want to talk about Trump anymore. I don't care. He was elected president. Get over it. The Russians didn't destroy the Democratic Party, Todd. The Russians didn't cause the Democrats to lose over 1,000 legislative seats in the past four years. They did that to themselves. Leave me alone. I'm going to watch a movie now. My boyfriend shot back at me saying that I was being a Trump apologist and that by accepting the election results, I was colluding with the new administration and, by extension, Moscow. On election night, my boyfriend relapsed into a mild opiate addiction he had beaten that summer, though it flared up when Trump won the primaries and then faded with the optimistic certainty about a Clinton win. His trajectory was probably typical. At 30, he was a lifetime Democrat from an upper-middle-class Jewish showbiz family from Calabasas, so obviously it was going to be Clinton for him. And yet, like so many millennials, he got sidetracked by Bernie Sanders, and for quite a while... And he became briefly disillusioned with the DNC when Clinton won the nomination over Bernie, though, of course, that was inevitable. For about a week, he briefly flirted with Trump because he seemed to resemble Bernie more than Clinton. 
and also because he was disgusted by the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration's decision to ban a natural and organic over-the-counter opiate powder called Kratom that he and his friends enjoyed, available in head shops everywhere. He and his friends were disgusted with his government interference and bureaucracy. But something about the Trump aesthetic repulsed him, and he took offense to the man in very dramatic ways that I thought were borderline ridiculous. In fact, I think the aesthetic of Trump, Trump the needy vulgarian bully with the bad hair and the orange skin, is what offends people more than whatever his actual ideology might or might not be as a former liberal New York Democrat. But what was happening to my boyfriend was also reflective of the epidemic of moral superiority that has engulfed and is now destroying, eating alive, the American left. I can now count the times my boyfriend has left our house since the election. His hair is long and tousled. He hasn't shaved in months, and he is addicted to three things besides opiates. Russian conspiracies discussed on Reddit, Rachel Maddow detailing Russian conspiracies, and Final Fantasy XV. And if I say anything disparaging about the media and the fake news and the noticeable shifts in tone and bias in certain national newspapers, just an offhand quip, his hackles will rise. A believer that whatever the Trump administration says about fake news and the awful media is not to be trusted. My boyfriend is a part of the supposed resistance, though too tired to actually go out and protest. A resistance to an election that has turned him into a millennial wreck. At times, he looks like an enraged, bedraggled Russian peasant, ranting and raving and stomping around the condo, MSNBC blaring, my boyfriend yelling, piece of shit, whenever Trump's image appears on the TV screen in the living room. Or after reading something online that implicates Trump with Russia, he will jump up and down and start clapping with mock delight. Impeachment. Impeachment is coming. I can't wait. Sometimes I look at him and wonder, is this what I signed on for? Everything had been so nice before this election. My boyfriend and I had never discussed politics, mostly because I'm interested in other things and I'm white and middle-aged. And we'd met during the second year of the Obama administration, and the election of 2012 barely registered with us. Obama won, life moved on, no protests in the streets. But something odd was happening early on in 2015 and 2016. And yes, this is probably very typical with a lot of people in terms of what happened to me. Something didn't seem right. There was a new distraction. The mainstream news that I had been so enthralled by my entire adult life and somewhat trusted, namely institutions like the New York Times and CNN, were not tracking what the reality was, it seemed. And so the disparity between what was actually happening on the ground and what the news was reporting had never been more glaringly obvious to me in my life. And I began now paying attention to the campaign, which historically I've had little or no interest in, because of how the media was covering Donald Trump and how it seemed they had zero clues on how to do it. A prankster had appeared, an actual disruptor, and the press was clueless. The disruptor followed no rules. There was no protocol. He wasn't a politician. He didn't care. He was like the Joker in the Dark Knight. What made him so frightening was that he didn't care about or need anyone's money. He insulted everyone, and his most potent insults were hurled at white male establishment figures. Everyone keep that in mind. It wasn't Muslims, women, Mexicans. The Trump insult machine was aimed at everyone he had issues with, and white men got it first and got it far worse than anyone else. And he was the perfect antithesis to the left's moral superiority, defined forever by Clinton's infamous basket of deplorables comment. 
And I couldn't believe that I lived in a country where the press had become this biased and corporate. And instead of trying to figure out and intellectually dismantle a disruptor like Trump by changing their old ass game plan and worldview, which was what you needed to do to battle the disruptor, learn to play by his rules. It seemed they wanted to keep hanging on to the journalistic status quo and its outmoded ways of looking at this brand new world that was flowering before our eyes, embodied by Donald Trump. And in doing so, becoming more and more freaked out that they lost all neutrality and perspective. At one point on election eve, if you went to the New York Times website, you were told that Hillary Rodham Clinton had a 98.2% chance of winning the election. Donald J. Trump had a 2.5% chance of winning the election. Yes, this was on November 8th, the culmination of what the New York Times had gleaned about America and its voters in their coverage of the election. The political conversations became increasingly for me not about the candidates themselves, but about how everything is being covered. And it seemed at times as if I was defending Trump when in actuality I was attacking the media. The fact that I had little or no use for Clinton didn't seem to bother anyone when and if the subject came up. Honestly, I rarely met anyone who had a kind of hardcore enthusiasm for her. Though during the spring and summer of 2016, I did meet and talk to hardcore enthusiasts for both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. And the majority of the millennials I worked with on a web series I was shooting over the summer had little interest in her as well. But everyone was being mischaracterized and demonized by the panicked media, the moral superiority of the left once again sniffing the air and clutching their pearls at every Trump outburst and joke. Taking Trump literally was the biggest mistake you could make as a reporter. Taking Trump literally was about as useful as complaining about the Kardashians. But you also couldn't miss the shadows of misogyny and sexism in the way Clinton was covered as well. But she was the clear favorite, anointed as a kind of moral savior of the establishment, the corporation. The way the press handled the coverage of this election was an absolute moral disaster for our country. And again, I don't want to come off as, my boyfriend accused me of being, a Trump apologist because a long time ago in a country now far, far away, I had made Trump Patrick Bateman's hero in American Psycho. I had researched the odious business practices, the lying, Roy Cohn as his mentor, the hideous racism, followed his trajectory. I had done my homework. You do not need to remind me. I know it all. And I hadn't just plucked him out of nowhere. The young men I had hung out with on Wall Street as part of my research for the novel were enthralled with Trump. He was an aspirational figure. And that troubled me in 1987 and 1988 and 1989. And that's why Trump is referenced 40 times in the novel. The man Patrick Bateman is obsessed with. The daddy he never had. The man he wants to be. So I got it. And I still do. But the country elected Trump. And if the Democrats want to stage a comeback in our government, they had better radically rethink most of everything they had focused on in the last campaign and beyond. You can dislike the fact that Trump was elected. Yes, definitely. And yet still understand and accept ultimately that he was elected this time around. Or you can have a complete mental and emotional collapse and let the Trump presidency define you, which I think is absurd. And then look to first 2018 and then 2020 as a way to correct things. But now we are where we are. And if you are still losing your shit about Trump, I think you should probably go to a shrink and not let the bad man that was elected define your self-victimization and your life. You are letting him win. So rock and roll, so corporate suit. So damn ugly, so damn cute. So well-trained, so animal. So need your love, so... 
So back to that dinner with the two friends in from New York last week. One was a chill guy, a commercial director, Jewish and liberal. And I say Jewish and liberal because the two longest relationships I've had are with Jewish liberal men. And obviously I have a thing for them who had voted for Hillary but considered himself an independent and had accepted the election results and moved on. My other friend, a woman in her 50s, Jewish and liberal as well, had not, it seemed, accepted the election results. And I was shocked by how frazzled she seemed when I saw her again after nine months. She was a mess, still reeling from a Trump victory, and she admitted this to me in the back of an Uber as we headed toward the restaurant after she asked about a couple who had been at my birthday celebration the night before. She sent something off about a few things they said and wondered jokingly if they had voted for Trump. There had been zero political talk at the table of eight on my birthday. When I admitted that they had voted for Trump, even though they had voted for Obama in 2012, my friend shuddered and moaned and leaned against me and said, I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear anything about that man. I'm so stressed. I assured her that I never talk about politics at dinner. So the whole night should be pretty chill for you. Okay. Whatever I was thinking. This is fucking March. I was thinking dinner was going along smoothly as the commercial director and I were talking about the Oscars and how we both thought La La Land should have won Best Picture and would have in a different world. Maybe if the transition in Washington had not been depicted as such a disaster by the press during the voting period for the Oscars and the fear and hatred of Trump hadn't been at such a fever pitch in Hollywood. Moonlight could be seen as a protest vote, a rebuke to Trump, though it could just have been that taking in the complicated voting procedure of the Academy for Best Picture now, too Byzantine to go into here, maybe Moonlight was passionately backed in a way that La La Land simply wasn't. Maybe it simply wasn't a protest vote. La La Land was already a global blockbuster when the awards were handed out, while Moonlight was, is, still struggling at the box office. And that could have swayed voters as well, a sympathy vote. Moonlight will be the second lowest grossing Best Picture Oscar winner ever. Only Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker lags behind it as the lowest grossing Best Picture Oscar winner. And soon we got into a conversation about ideology versus aesthetics. Yes, I know, something that has been discussed quite a bit on this podcast. And our conversation revolved around the way Moonlight in the entertainment press was looked at as an ideological triumph by many. And yes, true, an artistic one as well, though I think this was inflated directly because of the ideology in this moment, just as hidden figures' importance seemed amplified as well, with not a single cigarette smoked anywhere at NASA as the tip of the iceberg of the propaganda it promoted. And this aided in Moonlight's importance, while La La Land is unfettered by any of that and really is just pure cinema, pure aesthetics, zero ideology, a genre film. The director and I agree that 2016 was a terrible year for movies, and we didn't really care passionately about any of the winners one way or the other. But this ideology versus aesthetics debate led us briefly into Black Lives Matter, since Moonlight is a Black Lives Matter movie. But the difference, we argued, between Moonlight and Black Lives Matter is that Moonlight's aesthetics are often exquisite. 
While the aesthetics of Black Lives Matter should have been branded differently so it could have reached the audience it wanted instead of turning so many people off, the Black Panthers had a grasp on aesthetics that turned them into rock stars for young people, white and black, in the 1960s. But Black Lives Matter was a millennial mess with no sense at all of forming a coherent visual idea or style on how to present themselves. And yes, in this culture, presentation ends up, for better or worse, being everything. You would have to be a moral idiot not to grasp the importance of a movement like Black Lives Matter, but it was frustrating to see their message get eclipsed by a lurching, unformed aesthetic, and we joked that they could belong to the list of things on hashtag WhyTrumpWon. When hearing that, my female friend suddenly exploded into a spastic rage, telling us she was disgusted hearing us fault the aesthetics of Black Lives Matter, which we had really only done for about 30 seconds, by the way, and that we were both members of white male privilege. And what in the fuck were we talking about? Because Trump didn't win the election, and I can't bear sitting here listening to two members of the white patriarchy rip apart the aesthetics of Black Lives Matter. What? You want the girls to be thinner? Is that what you're implying? She kept ranting, often nonsensically, and I've known her for over 30 years, and I've never seen her this angry, this insane, talking over us when we try to explain what we meant, as if it needed clarifying. We finally calmed her down, but dinner had been ruined by her outburst. I kept it together, but I hadn't been this frustrated with someone in a long time, and yet it seemed so familiar. It was in keeping with the kind of over-emotional lashing out that has been endemic in the culture lately, especially among the morally superior, wealthy people I know. Democrats who had a lot of money and whose bubble lives were seemingly emotionally wrecked and torn apart by this election. This woman, who had the outburst in the restaurant, lives in a penthouse on the Upper West Side, and probably has a net worth of roughly $10 million. And for some reason, I kept wondering, why was her misery all of Trump's fault? How would she let it happen to herself? It was Trump that made her act like a mess? Victim culture? I'm being victimized by Donald Trump? I must protest him so people can see my morally superior virtue signaling. Look at me. Look at me. Barbara Streisand says she's gaining weight because of Trump. Lena Dunham says she's losing weight because of Trump. Really? You're blaming the president for your own problems and neuroses? This all reminded me of the Meryl Streep speech when she accepted her Lifetime Achievement Award at the Golden Globes in January. And instead of talking about all the filmmakers she had worked with and who had passed away in the last two years, Michael Cimino, Mike Nichols, Nora Ephron, or especially what it was like playing Carrie Fisher in Postcards from the Edge since Fisher had died just two weeks earlier, Streep used this moment to go on an anti-Trump rant for 10 minutes on national TV instead of eulogizing her friend, again reinstating the moral superiority of the left and ignoring aesthetics in place of ideology. This is, of course, Hollywood, so no surprise, and the two Hollywood pre-Oscar parties I attended in the waning days of February were reminders again of why I don't go out much in L.A. At one of those dinners, two big Hollywood players at my table spent the entire time complaining about Trump, even though one of them had worked with Steve Bannon during Bannon's Hollywood days, and showed the table a text that he had recently gotten from Bannon, noting that if his wife ever found out he was going to text back to Steve Bannon, she would probably take the kids and divorce him. That sounded extreme to me, and I said so jokingly, but he stared back and said, no, I'm serious, she's been having breakdowns ever since the inauguration. And in the no-one-talks-about-it category, Beverly Hills voted for Trump, the only red district in a sea of blue out here in La La Land. 
the outrage, the indignation, the panic, the horror of the Trump apocalypse, the bubble forced to look at itself and wonder where it all went wrong. Yes, the self-victimizing was still going strong, though waning. At another dinner I'd had in February with two male friends of mine I hadn't seen since the election, both men in their 60s and enormously wealthy, privy to vast fortunes, and who I enjoy having dinner with because it's usually at a great restaurant where one of them picks up the check. Drinks had just been ordered when one of the men muttered darkly about whatever Trump had fucked up that day. And when I said something non-emotional and non-committal in counterpoint to what I thought was an overwrought way of looking at the supposed fuck-up, really pointing out another opinion, another way of looking at what had so offended my friends, both men lost their shit and became infuriated and lashed out at me in ways I had never seen from either one of them. I had known one of these men for over 30 years. I had met him when I was 21, and I had never seen him this apoplectic before. And he started lecturing me. Ah, yes, that moral superiority again, until I ultimately said, forget it, forget it. But you know, guys, he did win the election. You got to let him do what the people elected him to do. This outraged them even more. And I was told that, no, he did not win the popular vote. He won the electoral college. And that shouldn't count. My blood froze when I heard that. When I pointed out that Clinton won the popular vote in basically two places, and this was not representative of the rest of the country, one of the men exploded and said, the Electoral College is bullshit. Los Angeles and New York should decide who the fucking president is. I don't want any goddamn know-nothing rural hick deciding who our president should be. I am a proud liberal coastal elitist, and I think we should decide who is president. We do know better. My blood ran a little colder hearing that as well. This was certainly not the tune that Clinton campaign advisors Robbie Mook and John Podesta were seeing when Trump was calling the Electoral College a rigged thing and a fraud and that maybe only the popular vote should matter. But to point this out was to keep the outrage going. So to ensure a calm dinner, I backed down. I agreed. I said I was just playing the contrarian. It's cool, guys. It's cool. Calm down. Once I backed down, the evening became pleasant. But only after I acknowledged their moral superiority in this matter. For some reason, I started thinking about the cost of Meryl Streep's gown and the Golden Globes and the $30 million apartment she had recently put on the market in Greenwich Village, as well as the respective mansions of both my dinner companions at Spago that night, and the disconnect between why the election went the way it did and what my friends' lives were really like. Why were they so enraged? Why were they feeling this way? I realized during the election that I didn't live in a self-made bubble, that I had friends who were voting for Clinton, and I had friends who were voting for Trump, like the country itself. I heard both sides of the arguments. And in reality, for either voter, there was a fair share of hand-wringing about both candidates. By the time the election rolled to its ending, Clinton's unfavorability rates were in the same league as Trump's. And I was no longer just reading the Times or watching CNN. Yes, I was also checking out Fox, somewhat amused, and other conservative news feeds. And I realized we were living in two totally different worlds, two totally different narratives that didn't come close to overlapping. I had failed to grasp the stark contrast until the election. Naive, I know, but there you go. But why was one right and why was the other wrong? Was this the sentimental narrative of the left condemning the right with their new moral superiority? Were all of the people voting for Trump really deplorables and racist members of the alt-right? No. And were all of the people voting for Clinton really out-of-touch neoliberal elitists who didn't care about anything but identity politics and maintaining the status quo? No. 
But talking to anybody about the election in that dark summer and fall of 2016, you'd think it was all either or, that there was nothing centrist about how one cast their vote, no coming together allowed. The idea of healing seemed impossible. You were either virtue voting for Hillary or you were evil. Even though the women I knew voting for Trump were all about the economy and resented the fact that gender was supposed to force them into voting for a candidate they didn't believe in. And yet they learned the hard way in L.A. that if they admitted this, massive fights from oversensitive Clinton supporters would tank the conversation. So they kept quiet. I had dinner with two couples in February of 2016. And one of the couples I had known for about a decade and the other couple I had just met that night in a restaurant in West Hollywood. I had never talked politics with the couple I had known for 10 years because, yes, I'm not interested, except that I knew they had voted for Obama in 08 and 12. And sometime during the second round of cocktails, things had loosened up and someone brought up something that Trump had said that week. This was a Saturday night and a hesitancy landed on the table with people looking at each other before one of the women admitted that she liked Trump and she was going to vote for him with her husband agreeing much to the relief of the other couple who admitted as much as well. I was shocked by this, but not offended. Can I say this one more time? I was shocked by this, but not offended. And I started to ask everyone why they had moved from Obama to Trump, interested in their reasons. And it was all economic trade and immigration with political correctness and identity politics coming in a close second in terms of things they were concerned about. In other words, yes, white people, perhaps. That night, I went home and tweeted about this discovery. By then, it was 11 o'clock on that Saturday night, and I thought the tweet was funny. And who would be reading this anyway at this time? It's just fun, a surprise, a lark. And the tweet said something along the lines of, just got back from a dinner in West Hollywood and shocked that the entire table was voting for Trump, but would never admit it publicly. And then I watched Saturday Night Live, and I went to bed. The next morning, I woke up slowly, vaguely aware that my boyfriend was lying next to me and already up and looking at his iPhone. Silence in the bedroom until, in a low voice, my boyfriend asked, What in the hell did you tweet last night? My boyfriend, since the election, usually wakes up, looks over at me, eyes half closed, and croaks slowly, Not my president, and then falls back asleep. I thought about it for a moment and realized, Why? What's up? He showed me his phone as I fumbled for my glasses and saw that the tweet had been retweeted and liked thousands and thousands and thousands of times, unheard of for my tweets, and including by, yes, Donald J. Trump himself. The tweet had, in fact, made international news overnight and was covered on hundreds of websites, and I was inundated with interview requests that Sunday and into the next week, all of which I turned down. Because what was I going to say? What would I be promoting? People on the left refused to believe this had even happened and preferred to believe I was trolling everybody, and they doubted if there really were any people really voting for Trump in that part of Los Angeles. But remember, Beverly Hills voted for Trump in the end. This was around the time that I began to lay off Twitter. One of the women at that dinner texted me the next day and said she laughed when she saw the tweet. But she also warned, don't tell anyone who it is. Her business was Hollywood-based, and who knows what could happen in this climate. People are way too hysterical, and it's just not worth it to defend your beliefs. What an awful way to live, I thought. The idea that the left would censor anyone, punish anyone is something that still causes my mind to reel, even though it has become the alarming norm in the name of identity politics, political correctness, freedom of speech. After what happened at Middlebury College a few weeks ago, when students refused to let an invited speaker, who was invited, by the way, by another group of students, to speak by shouting him down while he was on stage because they disagreed with his views, and the speaker didn't make them, quote-unquote, feel safe, 
and the speaker then had to leave, in other words, censored. There was an alarmed reaction among members of the left and Democrats and the media, concluding that, hmm, this maybe is not the best way to go. Where is this going to lead? Just a few days before the Middlebury incident, which was national news here, Van Jones, a CNN commentator and prominent Democrat who had a breakdown on live TV the night of the election and was heavily criticized for saying a few nice things about one speech Donald Trump gave and was almost banned from the party for doing so, told students at the University of Chicago that they have got to get over shutting people down who have a different opinion, a different viewpoint from your own. Quote, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. That's different. I'm not going to pave the jungle for you. Put on some boots and learn how to deal with adversity. You are creating a kind of liberalism that the minute it crosses the street into the real world is not just useless, but obnoxious and dangerous. The idea that liberal Hollywood would actually enforce rules about what people should be able to say and hear, which is what the woman who called me was worried about, is scary enough. But in the age of Trump, there seems to be no escape for some people. According to a survey by the software firm Better Works, nearly 50% of workers have seen political discussions between colleagues turn into arguments. A Reuters poll found that 16% of Americans had stopped talking to a family member or friend because of the presidential contest. When rival political views have come to feel like an attack on your very identity and you've been triggered by what you see as a macro aggression and you feel like you are living in a black and white world, I propose it's time to get up, pull on your big boy pants and have a stiff drink at the bar because in the end, we share only one country.
this past February, I was giving a talk at the Royal Institute of Great Britain, when at one point, of course, I was asked by the moderator what I thought of the quote-unquote unending horror that was happening in the United States. And I had to stop him and clarify that this apocalyptic narrative about the election and the president was really only that, a narrative. And it reflected the vast epidemic of alarmist, catastrophic drama that has swept the U.S. and the media. And I reminded the moderator, um, despite what you or I might think about Trump, half the country is probably somewhat happy with the results. You could hear a pin drop in the sold-out hall I was speaking in, and I realized that I was saying something no one there wanted to hear. Other things I said that were met with a defining silence, uh, the protests were useless, I hated the aesthetics of them. As a defender of free speech, I think the media overreacted to the Milo Yiannopoulos book deal, 250k from Simon & Schuster. And this was before the deal's cancellation in the wake of a ridiculous attack on Milo, redressing him as a pro-pedophile without placing the Milo narrative in context. The whole scandal was absurd, and the punishment didn't fit the supposed crime. And I dismissed the way Milo was somehow the reason angry trolls attacked the actress Leslie Jones, even though all Milo did was offer three tweets about what he thought of the Ghostbusters reboot and problems he had with her as an actress. And he did not incite a troll riot targeted at Jones. And that him being kicked off Twitter for supposedly inciting this troll riot was a huge problem in an oversensitive corporate culture that is intent on silencing people who have opinions, no matter how negative they might be. And I added that I missed Milo's provocations on Twitter and that I certainly would rather have him back over a middle-aged actress who couldn't take a trolling on Twitter. You could hear a pin drop. At the signing afterwards, many people came up and nothing was said about my remarks except by a man in his late 50s who said he disagreed with me on some things, and yet he agreed with me about the protest, which he didn't like at all either. But these opinions of mine hit the Internet and then made headlines in the Irish Examiner and the Daily Mail. Somehow, these opinions were provocative enough to warrant the headlines. I find this overreaction culture ludicrous, but this is the mood now. Silence yourself or else. And why I'm mentioning my recent trip to London is that post-Brexit, there is a chill there as well, as nationalism begins its sweep across Europe in the upcoming months. And this all leads to something else that seemed an example of the chill, and actually is related to my guest today, and was a very strange encounter I had with a young man in his early to mid-30s, an American, in the back of a cab. There were about five of us packed in, and he was asking me what music I'd been listening to lately. And I stopped and I thought about it and realized the music I probably listened to the most in 2016 was actually the Hamilton cast recording. Not because I loved the show so much, but simply because it had the best pop songs I've heard in a long time. And then my second most listened was probably uh, Jason Isbell's 2015 Something More Than Free record, which is almost as great as his Southeastern record from a couple years back. And I realized something when I mentioned Isbell, and I told the guy that my favorite pop music right now might just be country though you could also categorize Isbell as pop rock, I suppose. And then I thought of some of my favorite artists in the last few years, and there was Miranda Lambert and Jamie Johnson and Brad Paisley and Casey Musgraves and Ashley Monroe and Sturgill Simpson, among many others. And I was always a fan of the neo-traditionalists of the late 80s and 90s and big and rich in the oddies. And one of my favorite songs of last year was Luke Bryan's Roller Coaster, a nearly perfect pop production that you don't find on pop stations anymore. The young man sitting across from me in the cab was shocked. He was also a survivor of the election and could become a sputtering wreck if Trump came up in conversation or his image was seen on a screen or monitor. And he asked me seriously, how could you like that music? 
I had no idea what he meant and said so. He said, how can you like country music when they're all against us? Don't you understand that? They are against us, Brett. They are against our values. Now, this is a highly educated young man, very successful, working in the art world. And I stared at him, not knowing how to respond to that because he wasn't dumb. I never gravitated toward country because of any politics it does or does not espouse, but because in this music moment, it's simply where some of the best pop tunes reside. That's it. I explained this to him in the back of that cab on a cold, wet London morning in February, but he did not seem convinced, and that my liking country music confirmed something for him about me, that it automatically suggested I was a traitor. This overreaction so epidemic in the culture is everywhere in this moment, and I smiled tightly as we arrived at our destination, and I remember wondering in that moment what the young, idealistic, liberal American would think if I told him... Good Kid, Mad City was a much better record than To Pimp a Butterfly. Sam Outlaw is the youngest person we've had on the podcast since November of 2015, when the young British actor Alex Pettifer was on. Sam Outlaw is a millennial, no less, and you have probably not heard of him yet, though this might or might not change with the release of his second record, Tender Heart, which will be out in mid-April. Outlaw's first record, Angelino, announced, I think, a major new voice in country. Outlaw is basically soft rock country, maybe my favorite genre growing up in Southern California in the 70s. He's a young traditionalist influenced by George Jones and Merle Haggard and Dwight Yoakam, and yet even more heavily tinged with a Southern California sensibility. If you're old enough, you can hear strains of Warren Zevon's great mid-70s records and hints of country-tinged rock like the Eagles as well as Linda Ronstadt, or kind of like a mellow, sun-bleached Jackson Brown, but with mariachi horns and two-step tempos. And there are strains of Tom Petty and Don Henley and Chris Isaac as well. I love Angelino, but Tender Heart sounds even bigger, and the songwriting is even more assured. Outlaw won the UK Americana Award for Best International Album of the Year for Angelino, and he's been touring constantly in support of the record throughout the US and Europe, where sometimes his audiences are usually about three to four times bigger than some in the US, though I don't know how much longer that's going to last when Tenderheart is released, because I think he might be on the cusp of stardom, whatever that means in this day and age. But not a lot of men in country have his voice and looks, and let's face it, those are going to help a lot with the ladies, and some of the men perhaps. And I wanted Sam Outlaw on for a couple of reasons. I like his records a lot, and he's the only new modern country singer to achieve international acclaim, as well as leading the rebirth of the Los Angeles modern country scene. And I was searching for a millennial voice to talk to, to have a checkup with as to where certain millennials are at in this moment, as well as talking to Sam about his records and introduce him to listeners of the Brett Easton Ellis podcast. So, Sam, I was interviewed by a magazine from Norway last fall, and I was asked about the election, and somehow this got me talking about the nightmarish health care situation as one of the main issues in the campaign. This was before Trump won. And the two millennial women from Norway, uh, from the magazine, were looking at me in confusion, not because I said anything outrageous, but because they couldn't understand that people didn't get health care for free. I said, that's because you're from Norway. And they said, yeah, we're socialists. I asked my millennial assistant if he was a socialist after the interview was over. He's 23, well-educated, upper-middle-class, Jewish, liberal. And it was kind of a joke question, but he thought about it and seriously answered, yeah, I guess I am. And all of your friends, I asked, yeah, I guess they are as well, he said. The next day, I asked a Gen Xer the same question, who looked at me as if I was insane and said, are you fucking kidding me? Absolutely not. I am not a fucking socialist. 
My boyfriend is a millennial, and he doesn't believe in the labeling of generations. He thinks everyone, as little socialists are prone to, is essentially the same, and there should be no differences between human beings, no matter what their ages are. Yet I think we are all shaped by the decades we came of age in. I mean, as a millennial yourself, what do you make of this? I mean, you've described yourself as a millennial who feels out of place within your own generation, and that you see no values in safe spaces. But, you know, you do Instagram a lot, and you did a very DIY thing that is very common among your generation, which is self-releasing an EP. Are you, like, seemingly all millennials anywhere near a socialist? Are you, as an older millennial, a member of Generation Wuss? Yes, I think I must be a member of Generation <laughs> Wuss because it's defined by when I was born. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, uh, I, to your point, I don't connect with millennials for the most part. Um, I understand people's desire for life to be good and for people to have the things that they need, whether it be health care or education or whatever. Um, but I, ne- I don't necessarily think that all of those things are human rights. Right. Um, I also uh, was raised uh, in, a, in a home where... Um, even though a lot of our our religious life was based in the church, once I got out of, let's say, high school and got to college, there was this understanding that the only way to best understand what you believe is to talk about uh, your beliefs with people who disagree with you. And so uh, I've always been up against uh, people, uh, I guess, with different beliefs than me in one way or another. And um, being a millennial who can't connect with other millennials is maybe just a, another part of that. What are things about your generation that you can't stand? What are the things that they just need to do that you would be relieved in yeah. a way if they uh, open that door instead? Uh, well, I don't think everything should be handed to me. Um, I, I don't have this like hardcore pull yourself pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality where I'm you know I'm, I'm not trying to prove what a tough guy I am either. But um, I think that's a big thing. I think this whole notion of uh, if you disagree with someone, you're trolling. That's right. that's confusing to me. Just today, um, and for the most part, I, I think I feel the way you do about Twitter, which is it ends up being such more of a pain in the ass than anything. Why even bother? Um, but you know, I do have close friends in Nashville and other places where usually, if I reply to things on Twitter, it's to people that I personally know, right? That I'm personally friends with. And uh, a, a country singer friend of mine from Nashville today, like, retweeted a Rolling Stone article about how uh, the the Dolly Parton movie Nine to Five is just as radical as it was 30 years ago. And I just simply replied, "No, it's not." <laughs> and uh, she texted me like, "Are you are you secretly just an internet troll?" And I just got back to her like, you know, she's of course kidding with me, but she's also kind of not kidding. And she's saying, basically, how can you disagree? You know, as a white, you know, part of the white male patriarch, you're really not allowed to have opinions and you're especially not allowed to have opinions about um, feminism. In in that case, I was basically simply just trying to say, I don't think that movie is radical. I think the characters in that movie, while entertaining, are utterly absurd. And if anyone actually is in a work environment like those girls find themselves and they should sue the hell out of the company. Um, but but again, the point is, if you disagree, you're a troll. Uh, if If you voted for Trump, you're a racist. All those sort of very reductive uh, arguments. Well, I think it goes even further than that. I think the millennial generation is so sensitive about criticism. And it's something that just destroys them in a way that, as a member of Generation X, I just can't understand. I have already gotten reactions, some reactions from 
a podcast, our last podcast, where I was talking about La La Land. And um, I thought it was pretty nice to it. I thought I was, you know, uh, there were problems I had with it. But there were a couple of comments on Twitter saying that I was so harsh on La La Land. I just really took it down. And I thought, if that's really taking down a movie, then I don't know what you guys could deal with if mm. someone really decided to take you down. But I do think criticism is, for some reason, something you guys have a very much harder time processing. Yeah. I wonder why. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is true because I only know the way I was raised, but it's got to have something to do with the fact that the majority of my peers were raised in a, um, what do you call it, a participation award yes. kind of environment, right? So like a lot of the stuff that... Uh, you know, I would consider in some ways a cohort of yours, the Adam, you know, the Adam Carolla show. He talks about this a lot. Adam Carolla mm-hmm. loves to talk about uh, Generation Wuss in one way or another. But I, I tend to agree with him. I think that that is in many ways uh, the mentality we were raised with. Um, I don't know if I was raised that way. If I was, I mean, look, I, w- I was raised in a family where it was that bullshit cliche thing of you're great. You can do whatever you want. You can be president. I mean, literally telling me I could be president. That shit. Um, but you, but you grow up, right? Like, don't you grow up? And doesn't life kind of beat the shit out of you and teach you the way it really is? So, what I don't understand is maybe fine if that's the way you were raised. Fine, you were raised in a certain way that maybe handicapped you or, or didn't, you know, for the for the real world. But then, don't you hit the real world? And at some point, doesn't it teach you and correct that way of thinking and, and kind of teach you that no, you're not special. Or if you are, you have to prove it. It's not just built in. I know. It's really the old man in me talking, but I am so Right. How do you talk about this without sounding like just kind of a cranky old man, right? But I I guess... Well, I I am a cranky old man, so I I don't care. But I really... I mean, it's so amazing how my peers and I were raised where we were not told that at all. We were not... In fact, adults ruled. Right. Uh, They did not choose movies for the kids. They did not even really talk to the kids. The kids were told to go outside for eight hours and then come back. Yeah. It was it was a completely in, a complete inversion almost of the you know of generation was helicoptering parents you're so special everyone gets a medal yeah. I mean it's kind of tiring to say this but I do see these kids coming of age unprepared for so much shit that's going to happen to them yeah. and even my boyfriend who's now thirty is I, I'm just shocked at the little things that he can't quite grasp or handle or refuses to accept. And it's really about pushing the darkness and the reality of life out of the way. But there must be things also about your generation that you feel somewhat positive about. Is there something? Um, maybe in an attempt to analyze things, which I think is a good intention. They, yes. end, they end up analyzing things to death. But I think that the, the intention there is at least good, right? So they, they find themselves in a world where um, the person who's been elected president is someone they don't want to be president. And instead of maybe having a few conversations about it and a month goes by and we all move on with our lives, we are now you know four months deep and people are still analyzing it and talking it to death and having panic attacks and, like you said, kind of unable to maybe have a stiff drink and move on. So I think maybe uh, on the bright side, there's some good intention there. Um, I know... I know I don't want the other side, which is for people not to think about this shit and not to talk about it and not to have, you know, intelligent discourse, but maybe just fucking shut up eventually. You know, maybe maybe let it go for a little while and then shut up. Well, you are certainly a millennial Christian in the fact that you practice on a sliding scale and that you were never going to fit in with the the conservative crowd. For example, you've never been able to wrap your head around the typical Christian take on gay rights, for Mm -hmm. example. 
But don't you think a lot of millennial Christians have a more liberal tolerance about things like gay rights? Or am I just so lost in Christianity and I don't know how it works? Look, it's been years since I've actually actively gone to church, so I'm quite a, quite a bit out of that loop as well. I guess um, my, my brother and especially my sister are probably a little more in tune with that than I am. So based on what I see from them, I mean, yeah, compared to a generation or two ago, it, it's better. Um, but I still think it's pretty fucking bad. I mean, like, I still think, um, and again, I, my experience growing up in church, although I could criticize it, it was mostly positive. I don't have any horror stories about being in some creepy, weird, uber-religious upbringing. But I do look back at things that were said at the dinner table and kind of cringe and go, God, like, my parents really believed that shit, you know, and then we went along with it. Um, so, yeah, it's probably gotten better in the sense that it's, you know, 20 years behind me with the rest of the world, but it's getting there. I want to go back to your childhood for in a bit. But the first thing that I want to establish is, um, uh, and I think it was in the beginning maybe a common reaction towards you. A uh, certain music journalist for the Dallas Observer wrote a piece titled, I Couldn't Stand Sam Outlaw Until I Actually Listened to His Music. Yes. The writer ended up loving the record, but initially had a problem with your image. Quote, he's about as much of an outlaw as my lime green Adidas soccer shoes and called you a quote-unquote cowboy hat urban outfitter ass clown. Yes. And he had seen just a few pictures of you and decided not to listen to your record. And then he accidentally heard Ghost Town, one of your very best songs, on a compilation and didn't recognize who sang it and loved it and then saw that you sang it and had to reevaluate your work. I guess I can imagine people looking at you and perhaps thinking that, but you, I don't think you really have that kind of, you know, that kind of image. But don't you think that drawer the writer is putting you in is kind of over, that the image can be anything you want and it will be accepted on one, one way or another? Or is there an ideology versus aesthetic situation in modern country? And is there a stranglehold? of conservatism over the genre. And that can go to the way you one presents themselves. But, you know, I mean, Chris Stapleton looks nothing like what a country artist might have looked like 20 years ago. What, what right. do you make of that kind of, that initial reaction people had? Um, you know, I think of it so little now, but then when you remind me of articles like that one, I just laugh because I remember when I read that, I, I laughed to myself and thought, you know what? He's saying what a lot of people think. So Outlaw is my mother's maiden name. When I first started playing out with the name Sam Outlaw, I'm not going to pretend it wasn't for some deeper purpose. It was more like Outlaw is a country-sounding name. I'm doing country music, and it's just a hobby right now, so fuck it. Then when it kind of crosses that line from hobbyist into all of a sudden now this is my career and I'm putting out a record that's produced by Ry Cooter, and all of a sudden people are listening to you and judging you, you rethink that shit like, oh, man, do people think I'm using that name because I'm trying to put off some tough guy image or I'm trying to create this, you know, the sense of like some old school, you know, weathered, uh, beaten down country tough guy. Um, but look. Maybe in other genres this wouldn't be such an issue, but this is not other genres. This is country music. And people who care about the history of country music like I do, I think sometimes stray too far. And, and instead of simply caring about the history and perhaps wanting to preserve a part of it that, that is good, um, they become policemen about the genre. And um, that dude uh, who wrote that that article for the Dallas whatever it was um, again I think that he he hit the nail on the head with how some people felt I still am not accepted really in Nashville people still for the most part don't want to write about me in LA because it's country so it's like no one fucking likes me in Nashville because it's you know I have the name outlaw and because I'm doing this in LA and no one wants to write about me in LA because it's country music so I find myself doubly you know kind of 
uh, apprehended on both ends. But I think what that guy wrote about was an honest reaction, and I loved it. And 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 still to this day, it's probably one of my favorite uh, things that's been written about me. I just want to go back. I just want to establish a little bit of your childhood so I can mm-hmm. kind of understand. You were born in South Dakota. Yeah, which is a state in America. Yeah. In Aberdeen. Aberdeen, South Dakota. That's right. And you lived there until you were? till I was three. And then we moved to Virginia Beach, Virginia for like two years. Then when I was five, we moved to Chardon, Ohio, which is right outside of Cleveland, small little suburb outside of Cleveland until I was 10. And then San Diego. Yeah, which... When when my dad told me we were moving to San Diego, I mean, for all I knew, it was like he, t- he might as well said we were moving to Hollywood. You know, it was like we were, this was it. What does it mean to grow up in a conservative Christian home in terms of 1990s style? I mean, what was that? What did that mean? Um, well, it, it meant from an early age, uh, I became pretty obsessed with music. But even though my dad was a jazz fan and a huge classic rock fan and had this great record collection, a lot of that was hidden from me and from us. So I wasn't really allowed to listen to like mainstream rock radio, even though, of course, I would sneak it. Um, I, I was allowed to kind of listen to oldies, you know, classic rock. So like I remember riding in the literal station wagon with my mom and we'd be listening to like Frankie Valli or Everly Brothers, and you know, which is to this day some of my favorite music. Um, so I'd have to like take my mom's radio and like go somewhere and kind of sneak it and I'd listen to, you know, I'd put on the radio and hear whatever was on pop radio. So that means basically I was listening to a lot of the contemporary Christian equivalents of their pop counterparts. Mm-hmm. So instead of hearing a Richard Marx record, uh, Marx record, we were listening to like Michael W. Smith. Or instead of listening yes. to uh, Garth Brooks, we were listening to Stephen Chris Chapman. Um, so, uh, and to this day, I still think some of that stuff is great. But in a lot of ways, I was kept from the I mean, like all that stuff was almost like it was 10 years behind its time, right? So like a Michael W. Smith record from 1995 maybe sounded a little bit more like what, you know, his his secular equivalents, you know, artist was making in 87 or something like that. I love Christian rock. Wow. What do, what's I your love, favorite stuff? There's three stations on Sirius mm-hmm. that I... that I. Uh, this is shocking to me, by okay. the way. Because they're pop tunes. Yeah, they're, well, like, they're like rock songs from the late 70s. Yeah. They have... Some um, of them. Hooks. Oh, they yeah. Hooks. Well, I don't st- know all about beats. I still say uh, the, the, the best stuff from folks like Amy Grant in the 80s, to me, that still holds up against the best pop music that was being made at the time. I have Amy Grant's... Uh, it's a compilation record called The Collection. Mm-hmm. I have it on vinyl, yes. and I bust it out, get drunk at like Christmas, and I, I sing along to Amy Grant Collection. Um, and she's married to Vince Gill, whom I think is uh, you know one of the best things in all, of all time. So I still see the merit in that music, and me and my friends that grew up similar to, you know, to, to how I did, we can kind of listen to it together and laugh it off while also kind of liking it. But look, I'm not going to tell you that I actually think that like DC talk was like, you know, <laughs> the height of, you know, mm-hmm. whatever cool in 1992. I just didn't know any better back then. You know, I was 10 years old in Chardon, Ohio. What the hell do I know? Was it a, a middle class family? Middle class family. Yeah. My dad, uh, he was in uh, the automotive industry. He ran companies that would make like rubber parts uh, for the automotive industry. And so his job uh, moved us out to San Diego when I was 10. My mom, as, as long as I always knew, was always just a stay at home mom. So I'd kind of like an 
an idyllic, you know, pretty, you know, typical yeah, child. Southern again. California in the nineties. Your teen years are the nineteen nineties, and yes. you're in Southern California. What were you? What? What were we going to high school? So uh, we moved to uh, the suburb in North County, San Diego, called Poway. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, like I said, I remember when when I went across the street in Chardon to tell my best friend Jake, Jake, we're moving to San Diego. I remember telling him like, uh, yeah, and you know, man, it's Southern California, so I'm, you know, it's it's where the movies are made. So I'll I'll be able to tell you about all the new movies coming out. Like even then, I was obsessed with movies as a little kid. And when I found out we were moving to Southern California, I thought we were moving to like Hollywood. Um, but yeah, we moved to this. It's actually called this. Uh, it's called Poway. It's called the city in the country. Is its actual like kind of like byline. And it, it, it kind of had prided itself on being this um, place that kind of cowboy types could live, even though it was modern and nice. Um, but look, I went to the same high school as like the Blink-182 guys. Mm-hmm. So like the culture that I grew up in was like unwritten laws and Blink-182 and the offspring and, and that kind of stuff. Pop punk yes. uh, was a big deal. Um, everybody skateboarded. Like the second I got to San Diego, I had no clue how to play soccer. I had no clue how to skateboard. And right away, I had to go buy you know, a soccer ball and a skateboard. Board and I sucked at both of them. Was high school fun? Was it awful? Were you popular? Uh, I I think I kind of got almost popular by my senior year, um, but I was a good kid. Like I didn't really fuck around. I didn't. I remember one time, like my senior year, I think it even was, like a buddy of mine, one of the cool kids, whatever, walks up to me in the quad and he goes, um, "Someone, someone was telling me that you're like waiting to have sex until you're married." And I was like, yeah, I, well, I don't really talk about that too much, obviously. But, you know, I kind of believe in abstinence. And he, and he just looked at me like I was insane. He's like, so what do you what do? You, do? you know, I was like, well, if you're not doing that, then what's your what's your purpose for living? Uh, but, yeah, I was in marching band, so that's not hip. But I loved music. I was good at playing the trumpet. It was a huge marching band. So, you know, m- marching onto a field with a 400-piece marching band, you feel like you're in an army or something. Um, starting my junior year, I started doing musicals, which was also not cool. Um, I was part Acting of, in them? At, well... Singing in them? Singing. So I, I tried out my junior year because I was like, I like to sing. I'm going to try out for a musical. And these motherfuckers cast me as the understudy to the lead. In what? In Bye Bye Birdie, mm-hmm. which in the, in the musical version, Albert is the lead, you know, not the whatever the Elvis character, uh, Birdie. So I, I, I remember I, I became the understudy of the lead, and the guy who ended up becoming my best friend, Bobby, he was cast as the lead, but he was in speech and debate, so he could only do two out of the four shows. Mm-hmm. So with one-tenth of the rehearsal, I actually had to perform that musical. It was my first musical I'd ever done as the lead, and it was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. What, what instruments were you playing? So I was playing trumpet in the band starting you know, fifth grade all but through high school, and then um, I didn't pick up a guitar really until I was 15 or 16 years old. A buddy of mine uh, named Ryan played guitar. He showed me a couple chords. And like right away, I was I was smitten with that. What happened after high school? I mean, did you go to college? I did. I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. All four years. All four years. And when were you in an Oasis cover band? So that yeah, so that's that's kind of a misnomer. I, in some interview, I said I think I said my high school band was basically an Oasis cover band. Pacific Suns. Oh my God! How did you get, even get that name? Did I say that? Ugh. No. This is the kind of shit we're like. So I, I, I rewatched some of that Eagles documentary the other day, mm-hmm. and it shows like the bands that those guys were in in high school. And like I think to myself, if anyone ever uncovers the music that I was making in high school, mm-hmm. it wouldn't even be like funny. I would just be straight up 
Really? Oh, it's yeah. So, but in high school, um, I fronted some weird band uh, that, like, it was like they had a saxophone player. <laughs> it was this kind of misguided, like, almost Dave Matthews sounding. But I was all into Britpop, so I was getting into Radiohead and Blur, and mm-hmm. of course Oasis because I was just one of the biggest <clears throat> bands in the '90s. Oh God! And very coverable, catchy music. Yes. I think we had maybe two gigs all of like my senior year, but. Uh, mm. Probably half of the songs were like Oasis songs. Did you see that recent Oasis documentary? Yeah, it was amazing. Oh, my God. It really was shocking because really, I mean, I like one song maybe on the third record, but really just two records for a decade were really the the soundtrack for that for you know the new Britannia or whatever they and and, the, and they're so good those two records are pretty much yeah. amazing and I forgot I, how popular they were how insanely popular yeah. and then how ridiculous it was that it all just went away disappeared so after college at what point do you enter the job market and become an advertising salesman right. what did this entail exactly so in college i it was kind of the same deal i sort of would play in little bands we didn't really have gigs or anything but i, I dabbled in songwriting and and back then i think a lot of my influences were more kind of folk stuff i mean like most people i really turned on to to rock and roll with bands like the beatles and, and that kind of thing so i think my influences in college were basically still brit pop I, I I knew when I was graduating college, you know, with that big moment where you're like, okay, it's time to become a real person. What you know, what job am I going to get? What am I going to do? And so this was 2004, and even then the job market was shit, and and no one knew what they were doing. But it, it came time to graduate, and I said to myself, well, I I have a business degree, and I really like music, but do I really think I have what it takes to be a musician? Probably fucking not. Okay, well then, how about we try to go into the music business? Let's combine these two things. I like music, and I can do business, probably, because that's my degree. So um, I got a job. I actually got hired on as an intern at a small, like, pop-punk label based in Orange County, uh, but that had national distribution and, you know, was kind of up and coming. And then um, right before I was about to start work there as a paid $0 an hour free intern, they called me up and said, hey, our, our warehouse guy just quit you want a job, right? And I said, yeah. And they said, well, you're, you're going to be interning here with the idea that you'll get a job. And I said, yeah, that's the idea. And they said, well, how about we give you a job now? And they said it pays 10 bucks an hour. And then they went, eh, uh, actually, it pays eight bucks an hour. <laughs> so uh, I became the everything guy at the small record label. And uh, that was one of my jobs was buying advertising. So one of my roles was to buy the online advertising for our album release campaigns, and I I got connected with this company that back then was like the media buying company for the music industry. It was called IndieClick, and they had this kind of hip aesthetic that would they would connect you like so if you're putting out X Y Z bands, they would say tell us what your budget is, we'll help you figure out how to spend this money on like online banner ads and video ads and stuff on the internet. Again, this was early days for online you know media buying stuff. So I I got connected with them. I went on some trip to Africa, came home, and uh, had no job. And I called IndieClick, and I said, hey... uh how 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 do you would you guys like to hire me? Please give me a job, please. But compared to most millennials, I mean, it's kind of a good job. You're a successful advertising guy in Southern California. You're married. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're making some money comparatively to oh, what yeah. other people are, yeah. are making, and but you're not happy. You're not happy. There's you're dissatisfied. Your marriage collapses oddly enough around the same time as your parents' marriage does. What is going on in this moment leading to your thirtieth birthday? Um, a lot, man. So so. I'm not exaggerating when I say I had a, a, a mostly very kind of happy and idyllic childhood. Uh, 
I think I got married the first time at age 25. And so even though I was young and you could say somewhat naive, it wasn't like I was an idiot, right? Like I went into it kind of knowing what I was doing, perhaps idolizing marriage and family a little too much. But a couple years into my marriage, it's obvious that a lot of the red flags from before we had gotten married probably should have been paying attention to a little better. My marriage kind of starts falling apart. At the same time, I'm witnessing my mom... Uh, without going into it too deeply, struggling with some real mental issues. Um, we always knew mom was different, but then like, you know, when you kind of get away from home for the first time and you come back and you've been away from it for a while, all of a sudden you're like, no, actually something seems wrong. Like this, this behavior is actually kind of erratic and, and Hey dad, maybe, maybe mom needs some serious help. Have you ever thought about getting mom some help? Um, so I, I, to, to make kind of a long story short, I, I witnessed my mom have a psychotic episode in a hotel. I had to call 911. I, I witnessed um, my mom overdose on painkillers, which I believe she was taking because they calmed her down and she didn't even know about like what Xanax was. Um, so I watched my mom kind of spiral, and I also watched my dad... Um, f- one way or another kind of check out and next thing I know my mom has moved to North Carolina I'm getting divorced my parents are getting divorced and my mom is in a different part of the country and um, it was pretty fucked up you didn't did you notice this as a kid or as an adolescent that there were that there was a problem I remember the first time I came home from college so I was 18 and um, I just remember my mom acting very emotionally erratic in the kitchen and uh, I, I looked around, and you know, my sister, who's very close in age than me, she's only 18 months younger than me, and then we have a brother who's 18 months younger than her, so we're all close, close in age. Yeah. And I remember I kind of looked around, and, and nobody really seemed to bat an eye, as though it wasn't that odd. And I remember I went and took my dad outside, and I just said, hey, Dad, like this, this doesn't seem right. Like What's going on? And, and so that was when I first noticed it. And then, again, without going into quite a long story, basically throughout my college life, I feel like when I would come home to visit, I would see increasing more and more kind of warning signs that something was not right with my mom. And, and then that would ultimately, you know, you would kind of be able to hear fights happening in the house. And I remember one family vacation, like I brought my girlfriend and was mortified because like the whole first night you could just hear my parents screaming at each other at this like cabin in, in Mammoth. So suddenly it's your 30th birthday. What happens? Um, well, like you said, I was making good money in advertising. At this point, I, I'd taken a job at a company that originally was called BuzzNet, then Buzz Media, then Spin Media. But we, it was this big kind of publishing youth culture company, and I was their sole rep to the music industry. So I was, I was the guy that now people were coming to me with their budgets for tours or record releases or whatever and saying, hey, you've got all the best websites. Help us figure out how to spend that money. So I was essentially in sales. I was making way more money than I ever thought I'd make, uh, probably period. Um, I wasn't afraid of money because my, my dad at one point, you know, he became an entrepreneur and at, at that point he was like a millionaire. So I'd seen, I'd been on both sides. I'm not going to tell some bullshit story about how we grew up poor right. necessarily, right. but we were normal kids. Mm-hmm. And then I remember when I was probably 16, 17, all of a sudden we had a little bit of money and then a little bit more. So I wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I was, you know, fucking Scrooge McDuck swimming around in dollar mm-hmm. bills, but I had a really nice Audi. I had a nice hip apartment in Echo Park. I had nice shit. I had a nice couch from room and board or whatever the fuck. So I throw myself, of course, a kind of show-offy but hip, like, 30th birthday party. We rented out um, some hip bar in Silver Lake and had live music and open bar and all this. So basically, again, not extravagant by any means, but 
I probably looked like I was doing better than most of my friends. And strangely, at that point, even most of my friends were musicians. So even then, I was kind of I kind of gravitated to to musicians. So have the party, feeling good, get drunk, wake up the next day, and kind of have that moment of like, ah, oh, shit, I'm supposed to feel good. Um, and it wasn't just because I was hungover. I, I think um, I realized. Well, well, I remember what it was. I started thinking to myself, what's my 35th birthday party going to look like? Like a more a more open bar, a bigger bar, like a more expensive Audi. Like what the fuck? Like who? Why am I doing this? And it, it wasn't necessarily even a come to Jesus moment. It was just a very honest, uh, I guess, look at myself, and I realized I didn't. It wasn't that I didn't care about advertising. I didn't care about doing a good job at something. I just wasn't motivated by money. And at some point, if you're in sales, that kind of has to be your motivation. Um, and I, so I had asked myself, well, when do you feel good? And I realized the answer to that question was when I feel like I've written like a decent hook, when I've written a good song, when I've, when I've <clears throat> written a song that I know in some way or another stands up. You've said that there were friends of yours who were musicians for a living, and they did it successfully, but they were all still poor. Mm-hmm. How do you prepare yourself financially to fly into this foolish dream of yours? I mean, how are you going to escape their fate? The, even though you know you said there's a deeper joy uh, in, accompli- in accomplishing something you want to do rather than doing something just to make money, what is the financial reality, or what was, or, or how did you, how, what was the plan, dude? I still don't fucking know. I mean, so I remember when I when I finally gave my boss like my two weeks notice, whatever it was, almost to this day. So so we're in early 2017. It was almost to this day two years ago in 2015. So and this is funny. Like this is me an example of how like fucked up the music industry is now. At that point, I'd already gone to Nashville, kind of dipped my feet in that water, gotten kind of more or less for lack of a better word, discovered by some folks. I had a manager at that point. I had made a record with Ry Cooter, like an American legend. I remember going to my boss and saying, hey, I have this opportunity to make this record. I need to take a week off. So I took a week off of work <laughs> to make my debut album in North Hollywood with Ry Cooter. And then I went back to work. But I knew I had this tour of Australia coming up in April. So I thought, well, maybe she'll be able to give me a couple weeks off to tour Australia. Anyway, so I... I, I did this trip to Austin, Texas, and I'd been nominated for some award there. Lost the award, but I'm sitting by the water there in downtown. And I'm thinking, I'm, do, I'm basically just doing the math in my head, thinking my boss isn't going to let me keep just taking off work to like kind of be a musician. Um, so I said, I've, I think I got to do this for a living. And I called up my wife. I, I kind of had the you know whatever serious moment of saying, Hey, sweetie, I think I think I need to maybe quit my job to do music. And there was just kind of this pause, and she came back on the line and said, "Yeah, I've been I've been waiting for you to say that for a long time." Uh, but we, it's not like we had money. In fact, one of the reviews of my record um, was by this guy Kyle, and I bring this I bring this review up because it, to me it's indicative of some things. But I remember in his review he said something like he spent a while before he got to the music, and he said, "You know, Sam Sam Outlaw is not his name. His name's Sam Morgan, and he's an ad executive in Los Angeles." Yeah, yeah. And you can tell he's kind of pissed, like "fuck this," you know, kind of like the Dallas guy. And uh, and it said something like, you know, he, he was he making all his money in advertising, so he's clearly built up a war chest right. of money. Right. And I remember just laughing, thinking, "Dude, no, I didn't. What you know what I did with my money in my in, the, in my twenties in L.A.? I fucking spent it." <laughs> 
<laughs> I spent all of it. That's I have no money. That's what you do in your 20s. <laughs> That's what you do. And you know, I look back on that. I don't regret it. Right. I had a good time. I, I did what – I spent a lot of that money on my musician friends who had no fucking money. So uh, thanks to that money, I had a good time and, and I experienced life. Uh, but no, I didn't have money saved up. So to, to be honest with you – I don't know how I'm doing this. I mean, I remember two summers ago, I was about to run out of money, and I get an email from the company handling my, handling my publishing admin, and the email just said, check your account. And I went and checked my account, and there was tens of thousands of dollars in there, and it was because a few songs from my EP, which I self-released, had gotten like picked up for the DVD rights for some the show that blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so right. I went from having literally 900 bucks in my banking account to having like $23,900. So... It's it's those moments and the, those things have happened a couple times where I've been to the point where I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm going to go get a job at Whole Foods down the street. And then somehow, some way, some money comes in and me and my wife and now 10-month-old baby don't starve and die. You didn't wait for a wedding. The moment might not last. He took her off to a new life. Never looking back Cause when he looked in her eyes He saw him soul Reaching out like an ocean All that they need And it's more than their parents have Far as he knows Angelino The apex of L.A. country rock starts with probably Buffalo Springfield, yes. The Birds, The Flying Burrito Brothers. Of course, Grand Parsons was both of the two of those bands. What do you think of the Eagles? I think the Eagles are one of the greatest bands of all time. Um, I don't love every song. Like, I'd be okay if I never had to hear fucking Life in the Fast Lane again. Uh, Heartache uh, Tonight for me is the one. That's the one that, yeah, it doesn't work for you. For me, yeah. But... I think they were one of the greatest bands of all time, and I think it's because they were so insanely successful and because of that stupid line in Big Lebowski where he gets bummed that the guy's playing Eagles in the taxi cab. I think it's those two reasons that um, it's become kind of a hit band in some ways for people to bash. I think people get jealous of bands that get extremely successful. Um, but I'll tell you what, there are not many bands in history that have as many good songs as that band had. And that really lasted like an incredibly long period of time, given the fact that it was like a band band, where there was like four or five you know, votes at all time and a whole bunch of people who should be hating each other, you know, trying to forge a life on the road together. Were there other bands from the mid seventies? I mean, I, I know I mentioned Warren Zevon. Did he ever even register for you, or was I just hearing not that on till, my own? Not till the last like maybe seven or eight years when I started realizing how bad my history of uh, my knowledge of you know the history of rock and roll was. Uh, my buddy Taylor from the band Dawes is a massive Warren Zevon fan, so he kind of helped guide me a little bit uh, in terms of Zevon. But um, so when I was growing up, I don't I don't know what age all of a sudden my parents kind of said fuck it, like we have to let the kids listen to rock and roll. Uh, but I mean. 
it was it was the Hell Freezes Over record, so 1994 Eagles, basically a best of. Which I, I think the the version of Desperado from Hell Freezes Over is better than the version of Desperado on Desperado. But it was Hell Freezes Over. It was best of James Taylor. Um, it was like the best of America and the best of Bread, and it almost for sure was the. Uh, 1974 Best of Eagles compilation as well. So those are some of the artists that stand out to me. My dad was also a huge Chicago fan, so I still love Chicago, and I love Peter Cetera. Um, my dad was a huge Earth, Wind, Fire fan, which I am as well. Um, so that's the stuff that stands out. Uh, and I still I still listen to Earth, Wind, Fire, and I can't believe how good they are. It's just unbelievable. Um, but, yeah, that, that's kind of the stuff that I think maybe made the most impact. What does a producer do for on a record? I think it depends on the record. Um, I think some artists have a little less sense of what they want to accomplish. And when that's the case, um, the producer can do everything from helping that uh, artist finish a song to figuring out how to arrange the song to deciding if the song is even going to go on the record. Um, In my case, um, the one thing I've always felt fairly confident about, because I don't really consider myself a singer, I don't really consider myself a guitar player, and I I think people who've seen me perform would probably agree, uh, but I do consider myself a songwriter. That's something that I, that's like probably the one thing I feel like I can do. So um, when I made the record with Rye, um, it was, uh, one of the big things he brought in was himself. No one can play guitar like that guy. No one has that guy's vibe. We also had his son, Joaquin Cooter, on drums. And so those two guys kind of like working out their chemistry together in the room is huge because that affects everyone in the room while you're doing the basic tracking. Um, basic tracking being basically playing the songs. And then later you, know, you go in and overdub vocals or whatever it is. On my new album, Tenderheart, um, we used the same engineer that we used for Angelino, which is a guy named Martin Pradler. But I had already kind of such a clear sense of what I want to do with the tunes that I basically just brought in my road band and showed him the songs. And we we started tracking Tenderheart um, with just really me and Martin working as producers together. You once said, um, I don't know why people would make songs without hooks. Yeah. Do you miss uh, the well-made pop music single kind of reigning in the culture in the moment? And has it been replaced by anything great in the top 40? Um, You know, do you think that one of the reasons I think that country uh, has exploded in the last two decades is that it was one of the only places to find that kind of song? Uh, You know, whether it's Automatic by Miranda Lambert or Roller Coaster or whatever, it, it, it almost is where... The U2 song has now ended up in in country in a way, that kind of perfectly crafted pop rock song. And it's just not really available when you listen to, you know, uh, Top 40 now. A song that's just not beats, you know, that has a melody, that has a hook. And I think that's obvious on everything that you've recorded so far. Do you miss that kind of song in the center of the culture or is really everything so niche now it doesn't really matter like there's never going to be is there ever going to be another band that has hotel california uh you know being talked about for a year by all these quadrants of people or rumors or whatever i feel like i kind of discuss that with my friends every once in a while that like it's amazing to think about that there was a time when music that was good was also popular i mean to kind of go back to the trump thing like are people really so fucking shocked that in a country where McDonald's is the most popular restaurant and American Idol and The Bachelor is its most popular TV show that Donald Trump is president? Yeah. Is that really shocking to people? Right. Um, I can tell you that I'm 
to some extent, almost so not aware of top 40, it almost doesn't yeah. make my purview. I mean, I listen to older music, not because I'm some purist who thinks that anything, you know, that's new is bad. I mean, I also listen to some new shit like I do. Th- I still think Kendrick Lamar is the best thing ever. But I, I, yeah, of course I miss that being a thing because that's what I do. <laughs> right. If writing catchy songs was still like a way to make money and have a career, I'd be doing a lot better than I am. Well, I find myself listening to a lot of those songs because my boyfriend's a musician and he is interested in a pop single. He is uh, a few years younger than you, but still is interested in that kind of, you know, obsessed with Max Martin, obsessed with the way these songs are produced um, and sees an artistry and a craft to it that really gets him off. I am a little colder about some of it, but... um, you know, he's so, so I, I think that's why I really don't have that much interest in either because the songs aren't there. And I'm also, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, a records guy. Yeah. I like the whole record. I like listening to the whole record. And then once I finally worked through it, then maybe I'll have my favorite tracks. But I like to, uh, you know, get to know a record before I completely then start dismantling it. But I want to talk a little bit about where did Tenderheart come from compared to where Angelino came from. Mm-hmm. They were they were recorded not within that far space. I mean, two years or yeah, less, like yeah, a year and a half. Right. Maybe. And so, what is what's different about Tenderheart compared to Angelino? I mean, am I am I? It does sound bigger. It does have a, more of a sheen. But so did Angelino. I, I think um, going into Angelino because I had Ry Cooter as a producer, even though I. By the time we went in the studio, I was comfortable with him. Like, it, it, it's a big deal to make a record with a guy like that, right? Yeah. It, it, everyone's like, oh, wow. I mean, even if they don't really know who he is, like, they're, they, they've heard his name. So, like, oh, my God, you're making a record with Ry Cooter. So I think I was a little more careful to, um, I guess, pick the songs uh, that I knew would be conducive to his aesthetic. Yeah. Um, I think that doesn't mean that the songs that went on Angelino aren't songs that I love. But I, I think I kind of had a sense for this one will probably fly with Rye, and this one he probably would not. Like like the, the title track on Tenderheart, the song Tenderheart, the chorus is, whoa. I mean, it's a fucking oh, oh, mm-hmm. oh chorus. I probably would not bring a song that has whoa, whoa, oh as a chorus to Rye Cooter. Okay. Right. Um, so in that sense, I think with Tenderheart, I was a little more freewheeling, and you know, I, I, I guess I felt like I could really make my record. Now that doesn't mean that I didn't do that with Angelino because he was very kind of like democratic in the studio. Okay, so it wasn't like he was hawking, you know, parts and and you know, cut, you know, telling me to leave the room or anything. Um, but with Tenderheart, I think maybe I felt a little more free to bring in those influences that of uh, the shit I like, like soft rock or like Tom Petty. I mean, I am obsessed with the song Boys of Summer. I st- I can't. Who I, isn't? How is it? I don't. Who isn't obsessed with that? There ne- I don't know if there already is one. I should just look this up. But there sh- there needs to be a book on that song. Well, there's a fascinating chapter about it in a recent Tom Petty uh, biography called Petty. Okay. And it talks about how Mike Campbell uh, wrote the song, and he was going to give it to Tom Petty yes. to to record and. Tom just didn't get it. He didn't feel it. And then in the interim, while I was thinking about it, I think he slipped it to Don Henley for that album. And Don Henley immediately got it, recorded it super fast before recording, I think, the rest of that record. And I just located what was so special about that song. Um, 
Yeah, that's one of the best songs so, ever. But and, I, and I can understand being obsessed with it. And I'm in a genre, though, where it's all about the past. It's all about roots. And even now, it's like people will be like, uh, are you going to do the show tonight without your cowboy hat, without your Stetson? And I'm like, yeah, I, fought, I might, guys. I might go out there with a... And I'll make a joke from stage. Um, you know, I'm, I'm wearing this hat so you guys will know what kind of music I'm singing. So I'm, I'm, I find myself in a genre where, for better or for worse... It is both obsessed with the past, um, yet also wanting you to innovate in its own way that it allows you to innovate. But peop, uh, when when that same dude who made the comment about me having a war chest of money for my advertising career, he, he I remember he pointed out one of my songs, Angelino, which is one of my favorite songs on the record, is called Old Fashioned. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if some of this is just soft rock with pedal steel. And he, made, he said that as like a dig, you know, to hurt my feelings. Not maybe to hurt my feelings, but to criticize. And I was like thinking to myself, well, yeah, that's my favorite shit. That's what I'm trying to do. Um, so I think with Tender Heart, I felt a little more free to just do whatever the fuck I wanted. And I'm still not there. Like, I'm still kind of wanting to get more to that place where I can I – can, I mean, I remember bringing in the song uh, Lady in Red to show him the synth sound that I liked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, find me that synth sound from Lady in Red, and that's what I want to do on Ball. So I was referencing stuff that was certainly not country and not hip, not cool. Let's talk about movies for a little bit. There was kind of a back and forth uh, about what we we're going to talk about on the mm-hmm. podcast. Uh, I wasn't really sure what you were into or what you you know weren't into, and um, we we're going to talk about movies like Coal Miner's Daughter and yeah. Urban Cowboy, and did they help pave the way for the neo traditionalists like yeah. George right. Strait in the early eighties, right. things like that? Right. Well, did they? I think ultimately they did. I think uh, it's easy to look back on a movie like Urban Cowboy and say, you know, all it did was temporarily raise country music sales for a couple of years and then it went back to pre-1979 levels. But look, anytime you got John Travolta whooping ass in Wranglers and a Stetson flying around a dance floor in Houston, Texas, <laughs> you are selling country music and you are selling the country lifestyle. And I think it's the country lifestyle uh, that ultimately I feel like is the thing that kind of becomes more in uh, fashion or not. Uh, People will keep listening to traditional music uh, or traditional country music, and they'll listen to new country music forever and ever and ever, I think. But as far as them being willing to admit it, you know, that, even like with the Trump thing, I think there's a lot of people who like voted for Trump that just wouldn't admit that they did. That's why I think people were so surprised when he, you know, was elected, is because a lot of people kind of knew that he wasn't the hip whatever candidate, and they weren't they weren't going to talk about it. So yeah, I ultimately think that Urban Cowboy uh, helped make wearing a, a hat hip, and I think Coal Miner's Daughter. Uh, well, because it's a true story about one of the greatest country singers of all time, and that music was in on you know uh, was in front of people's faces maybe for the first time. Uh, of course, I think that it, that paves the way for for more country music. I said, "Walk the Line." Do that. I guess it was kind of that a somewhat popular. I'm trying to think of like movies that. I mean, I think the biggest one of all time was um, "Oh Brother Where Art Thou." The, that soundtrack ushered yeah. in that whole wave of like new folk, Mumford and Sons, Avett Brothers, which to me that music and I. I I don't mean this one way or another. To me, it basically kind of has its roots in almost like 80s and 90s worship music because I was in church in the 80s and 90s. I remember what that shit sounded like. I remember like Hillsong CDs, you know, that my parents had. So I still think there is 
I mean, evangelical America, I still think is basically calling the shots. And when a movie like Oh Brother, Why Out Thou comes out and puts gospel music and the beautiful voice of Alison Krauss and, you know, Gillian Welch and puts it in an international spotlight, it's going to change things. It's going gonna, it's gonna to have an effect on the culture. So who are some of your favorite filmmakers? Well, uh, Peter Bogdanovich comes to mind. Uh, really? As, yeah, someone that last you've had on the show. Yeah, so Last Picture Show is for sure one of my top favorite films of all so time. interesting. Millennials really respond to that movie. It's my so sad. It. It's it so is. sad. It is, I know. I mean, you like, I didn't grow up in a town that small, but when you see the, like, you know, the shitty, like, we, like, uh, you know, what's, at, like, floating uh, traffic light and the dust and the poor, like, kind of, like, you know, mentally handicapped kids. Sweet. I mean, it is. It captures oh, that sense of like, what are we doing here? What are we doing? And it has Hank Williams the whole time. Yeah. And it, to, to me, like as much as Hank is, you know, perhaps the one who's been forced on America the most. I still can't get enough of him. I still think he's one of the, the best. So I love the soundtrack as well. But that movie is also an entertainment. It is also kind of very well-structured, well-written. It's some, like a soap you opera. You get some TNA. Yeah. You, you get some uh, some kind of like, yeah, left-to-center sex stuff with him and uh, Cloris Leachman. Um, but you just get a really fucking good movie, and it's in yeah. black and white. I still think you can't beat that. Um, so Paper Moon's another one of my favorites. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich made a film which I think he would probably even agree uh, is not his best work, but it's about country music, yes. so I'll bring it up, which is uh, The Thing Called Love. With River Phoenix. And uh, when I first moved to L.A., one of the first uh, like celebrities I met uh, randomly outside of Largo was Samantha Mathis. So oh. River, it was River Phoenix' last film, and, and Samantha Mathis in it. And that movie I obviously don't no. think is very good, but... Uh, you know, some legitimate 90s country hits came out of that movie. Um, one of them, were to believe, was written by River Phoenix, um, but it was co-written by Harlan Howard, uh, which is the guy who said country music is three chords and the truth. So he he, he co-wrote a song that Patti Loveless had a big hit of in the early 90s called um, Blame It On Your Heart, which is, uh, in my own set, we often will cover that song. We've kind of turned it into a duet. But uh, yeah, Peter Bogdanovich is a big one for me. I, lo- I love movies in some ways probably more than music, but like so I grew up watching the Academy Awards. Mm-hmm. My mom was kind of like kind of the hip one between my two parents when it came to like being actually, you know, whatever, uh, aware of pop culture. My dad, I don't think, gave a shit for good reason. But my mom, so we'd watch the Oscars together every year. Yeah. So to this day, I still, even though it's like, even though I don't, like, kind of like Saturday Night Live, even though 99% of it is bad, I still fucking watch it I every week. Too. So I do too. I watch the Oscars every year. And even though it's, got its fault, it at least still feels like a somewhat connected, in at least the smallest way connected to art or something. Whereas the Grammys, to me, it's like, I haven't so even random. heard of 90% of these. Right, I just, you right. know. And don't get me wrong, if you get nominated for a Grammy, great. That's you know free advertising. Your record is for sure going to sell more, which means you can tour bigger, which means you can buy food for your family. So if I got nominated, I will gladly nod my way you know, in and out of the, the, the auditorium. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know of any of my peers that consider the Grammys even a watchable event. I mean, it's re- I really feel like it has the reputation of being pre- almost just a complete joke. But, um, man... What's going on at the Grammys? It's just awful. Some kind of ghost town. I'm on my way. 